Okay, so that's what we're going to be talking about today in just a minute. But for sake of review, here is our theme verse for this series. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. God's laws are perfect. They protect us, make us wise, and give us joy and light. God's laws are pure, eternal, just. They are more desirable than gold. They are sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. For they warn us away from harm and give success to those who obey them. And I know Richard and Kathleen are new, and some of you, uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody else is new here this morning, but we're covering, there are 14 periods of the Bible. And if you learn these icons, you'll get the entire story of the Bible, and you'll be able to recall the major things that happen under each of these periods. And so from now on, when you hear one of my sermons, or you hear a Sunday school class, you'll know, oh, that comes from the church period, or that comes from the silent years, or the captivity. And so that's what this rocket tour is all, um, all about. Now, I want to uh, emphasize this, what we learned a few weeks ago, that the focus of the Old Testament, your first half of the Bible, okay, the fo focus of the Old Testament is a people, the Jews, okay? The focus of the New Testament is a person, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, okay? Now, um, we said there are two keys to unlock the meaning and story of the Bible, and I want to just keep drilling this in your head until you can say it when you're asleep. Uh, key number one, I added this word so you could get it, Savior. The central character and hero of the entire Bible is Jesus Christ. Now, although the focus of the Old Testament is the Jewish people, we see that God is bringing about the Messiah, Jesus, through them, through their lineage, okay? So that's why we can say the central character and hero of the Bible is Jesus Christ. Not just in the New Testament, He's everywhere, okay? Uh, J.C. Ryle said this, the key to understanding the Bible is Jesus Christ. There you go. I love this one. I found this one from Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> he said, from every text in the Bible, there is a road to Jesus Christ. Now, so the central character, uh, the key number one, you've got to know that the Bible is about the Savior all the way through, Jesus Christ. Then the second key is it's about salvation. The theme of the, the character and hero is Jesus, the Savior. The theme of the Bible is is His salvation that He's bringing about. The theme of the Bible is God reconciling the world to Himself uh, through Jesus Christ. And so, going back to those icons, we've covered um, two periods so far. The first period is creation. And you remember, the Bible teaches us in these chapters, um, there was the creation act, there was the fall of man, there was the flood, and then the Tower of Babel, okay? Now, then we went to the patriarch era, era because God had promised He's going to send a Messiah all the way back in Genesis 3 in the creation period. And He starts that work through a man by the name of Abraham. He calls him out, tells Abraham at 75 years of age, I'm going to give you a son. Don't matter if you're 75. <laughs> I'm going to give you a miraculous son. And, uh, and the, the 
seed of the Messiah is going to come through him. So we have the patriarchs, the fathers of the Jewish nation. We got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they have a, uh, Jacob has a son named Joseph. So that's what that last half of the book of Genesis is about. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And behind it all is the Messiah weaved in there coming through the lineage of the Jewish people, our rescuer. Now, this is what we started last Sunday. We're going to hit it this week. And then we're going to hit it one more week, I think, and then we'll be done with the Exodus period. The Exodus period lasted 470 years, covers the book of Exodus, uh, which means out, to go out, Um, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the rest of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch is the big theological word for that. Now, I love this scripture. You know, Jesus... Uh, in the New Testament, when He came, our Messiah, God in the flesh, He would often be challenged by the religious leaders of His day. Religious people hate Jesus' people. They really do. And the religious people were always arguing with Jesus, and they gave Him the most grief, and they're the ones who crucified Him. And I love what Jesus said, referring to Moses which happened some 1,500 years at least before Jesus came. Look what he said. John 5, 46-47. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Can you see it? He's talking about, I'm in the Old Testament. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe, how will you believe my words? And so then we talked about how the Jews uh, began to multiply once they uh, ended up in Egypt because of a famine. They began to multiply exceedingly. Uh, And then a new pharaoh enslaves them. They are slaves for over 400 years. Think about it from our day back. 400 years is like the 1600s. That's a long, uh, long time. And over that 400-year period... Uh, they begin to grow to over 2 million plus people. Then there is the birth of Moses because God had promised Abraham, I'm going to come and I'm going to get the people out after 400 years of slavery. And so God is engineering the circumstances and there's the birth of Moses, a Hebrew baby. You all know about that. Moses going down in the basket to the Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised for 40 years in Egypt. He's 40 years old. And um, he has in his heart, he has this idea that one day, he knows he's a Hebrew, and one day he saw, sees some of his Jewish brethren fighting each other, and uh, I mean, uh, uh, an Egyptian uh, really fighting against um, one of the Hebrews, and Moses murders an Egyptian. Pharaoh hears about it. Moses runs into the desert and he lives there for the next 40 years in uh, the desert, stripped from all that he had. Then um, we see that um, all of a sudden he's out tending the sheep one day and a burning bush happened. There were burning bushes all the time in the desert there. But the thing about this burning bush was that it did not get consumed. 
and the Bible says God spoke to him out of the midst of the bush, and he tells him to go back to Pharaoh and say, it's time, let my people go. And you know the story where he goes back to Pharaoh and he says, the, uh, Yahweh has told me to tell you to let my people go. And the Pharaoh mocks him and they had to take takes ten plagues to get him out of there. Then Moses, at the end of the ten plagues, which is the death of the firstborn, Moses leads out Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. That's what the red blood is on the doorpost. Because God said, I'm going to kill every firstborn except those who have blood on their door. So Moses leads them out by the blood of the Lamb. Then uh, the Passover uh, meal is established. That was kind of like the Old Testament Lord's Supper. Okay, let's put it that way. Then there's the miracle of the Red Sea. Moses uh, and the Israelites are trapped at the Red Sea. Moses raises his staff, the Red Sea parts, and they were able to walk across. Now, here's the key thing. Um, it's a miracle. We, we learned today during Sunday school that the waters were supposedly a half a mile deep that they were walking through. This wasn't like... The, wa- the water was like this tall, okay, is <laughs> a half a mile deep. And it says they walked across dry land. So that was another miracle, how this water had been under there for centuries. Now it's instantly transformed to dry land. And then we saw how uh, God had purposely turned the Pharaoh's heart to say, what have I done? I've let go of all my free labor. And uh, so he goes to chasing after them. Quarter million people we learned in Sunday school. A quarter million uh, of Pharaoh's army, chariots, and stuff like that chasing after these two million helpless uh, Hebrews. But once they get uh, the Israelites get on the other side, the uh, God begins to collapse the water around the Egyptian army, and then they get to the other side, the uh, children of Israel, and they look. And over 250,000 people that were coming to kill them were killed just like that by God's mighty hand. Now, I love this picture. <laughs> That's the way they looked. <laughs> and think about it. Wouldn't you look that way, too? If you just thought your life was over and then <laughs> and uh, uh, God had taken care of the thing. Now, here's where I want to pick up, okay? Because you got to get all that uh, to understand this. The next thing that happens is celebration. They have a Holy Ghost hootenanny of a party after that happens because I'm sure their first reaction was that, like, oh. And then after that, they're like, and they, they know the ramifications of it, they're like, yeah, yeah. And so they're throwing a party, they start singing. The Bible says that they wrote a song and they begin to sing the song of Moses. And so everything is just going absolutely wonderful. And, and uh, kind of like when we hit a high point in our life, we think everything's going great. Oh, if they only knew what was ahead of them, right? <laughs> okay, so they're, they're celebrating. But then, it wasn't too long after that. I think it was three days after that experience. Ten plagues. God delivers to the Red Sea miraculously. God kills 250,000 of their enemies. And they get to this, they're thirsty, they want some water, and they get to this place called Mara. It was a body of water 
When they tried to drink from it, they thought, finally we got water. They tried to drink from it, and the water was bitter. And they began to moan and complain and say, Moses, why did you bring us out here just to die in the desert? They forgot what God had done, and they disbelieved God. But Moses said this. I mean, uh, God said to Moses, I want you to take a tree over there. I want you to chop it down and throw it into the waters. And those waters became sweet. And not only did those waters become sweet, just right around the corner was a place where uh, there were these palm trees, this beautiful oasis, just right around from that place of bitterness. Then... The next thing that happens, God has brought them out to uh, a place called uh, Mount Sinai. And there, He gives uh, the Ten Commandments. Okay? And there's Charleston Heston with the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Charleston, actually, uh, he's the best-looking Moses character I've ever seen. But possibly, that's what it looked like. Because I think when God wrote the Ten Commandments, He did not write them in King James English. He wrote them in Hebrew, okay? And so that is ancient Hebrew writing there uh, on those uh, tablets. And so the Bible says that Moses went up on the mountain for some 40 days and 40 nights. And while he was on the mountain, there's this fire that comes down and uh, covers the mountain and the people are afraid to even go up on the mountain, and they shouldn't because God said, don't go up there. So Moses goes up there, and he's there 40 days and 40 nights, and while he's up there, God is giving him the Ten Commandments. The Bible says it was written by the finger of God. Now, I know in the Ten Commandments movie, and I know some other cartoon versions of this, you see this lightning come down and writing it. I don't know how that happened, but the Bible just says it was written by the finger of God. In other words, Moses didn't come up with it. God came up with it. This was God's writing um, here. And uh, so while Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights, it's a natural human tendency for those Israelites to begin to think to themselves, when is he coming back? And they get restless and anxious. What is happening up there? Is, Is he dead? What is it? And so... They look to Moses' brother and they say, well, why don't you just, um, hey, this fella, he's up there. We don't know when he's going to come back. We need something to worship. And so they get together and they decide to take all this gold rings and jewelry and earpieces and stuff like that. And they uh, melt it together and they make a calf to represent God who delivered them from the Red Sea right there. And they begin to worship Him. And the Bible says they broke out in pagan revelry, which just means this. They had a bad kind of party down there. You see, God got them out of Egypt from all those false, wicked, immoral gods, but He still had to get Egypt out of their heart. And so here they are, uh, miraculously delivered by God, and they're down there having a drunken party, probably orgies and all the other kind of things that go along with that kind of thing. Moses begins to hear this sound and... And God says, I love how the Bible says, God says, go down to your people. (laughs) Your people, Moses. 
they're, they're doing something bad down there. Moses goes down there and sees them partying and having this uh, golden calf. And, and Moses got so mad, he took the Ten Commandments and, and smashed them. He went down there and he confronted his brother who was in charge while he was gone. And his, uh, I love the way the Bible says this. He says, Moses... Uh, they wanted something to worship, so we got all the jewelry and stuff like that, and we just threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. That's the way the Bible says it. Out came this calf. It's almost funny. And Moses said uh, he obliterated that bull, made it into powder, and made the people drink out of it. And God killed off some people uh, during that time. And so... That was the Ten Commandments. He went back up on the hill on Mount Sinai another time, 40 days and 40 nights, and God rewrote the Ten Commandments. Now, here are the Ten Commandments, what God wrote on those two tablets of stone. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Today we'd say this, put Jesus first in your life. Nothing else. He doesn't need to be a second. Doesn't just need to be an important part of your life. He needs to be your everything. All right? Then, number two, you shall make not, not make idols. Now, uh, the uh, King James says graven images. Uh, the idea is this. Um, it's to take something to make it represent God and worship it instead of God. Now, let me, let me tell you what that does not mean. If you have a picture of Jesus in your home, that is not a graven image, okay? Um, we uh, have watched some, uh, 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 some of the ladies went yesterday and saw The Chosen. Some of our ladies went and saw the movie The Chosen about the life of Christ. There's nothing wrong with to dramatize the life of Christ or to have pictures uh, of Jesus. Now, we don't really know what He looked like. We do know that he was Jewish, so he probably had a little darker skin than normal, a little brown kind of skin, possibly. Uh, we do know that he had a beard, because the Bible says that when he was crucified, they plucked his beard hairs out. I remember when I went to seminary, uh, we, our president, God love him, he was a good man, but boy, he was an old, staunch Southern Baptist boy. Woo! He was hard nose, old school. And he made us dress with ties on. We had to go to school with ties on. And he preferred we wore a suit every day to school, us preacher boys. And he also would not let anybody have facial hair. Couldn't have a mustache while you was in seminary. And I always thought to myself, now wait a minute, Jesus had a beard. <laughs> it's that factor. But anyway, that's what you call Southern Baptist versus the Bible. Okay. So, um, But what, what I'm saying is this. Nothing wrong with having a picture of Jesus, but here's when it gets wrong. If you had a picture of Jesus in your house and you got down and knelt before it and prayed to that picture of Jesus, that becomes a graven image. That becomes an idol. You don't pray to an image, you pray to God. Okay? Then, number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that not only means uh, not just cussing, but it means to take His name lightly in your life. Then remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, God uh, started a thing where He wanted them to work for six days, 
And then they were to rest on the seventh day. That was called the Sabbath day. And uh, we would say today that would be on uh, late Friday night and sa Saturday. Okay? And then, honor your father and mother. That's pretty plain. But that, just, that doesn't mean just when you're young and in their house. That means for the rest of their life, you're to honor them. My sisters are taking care of my mother right now. She's homebound. She basically sits in a recliner all day long is all she's able to do. She's just not able to get up and move around. She's been on oxygen for 10 years or so. And my sisters moved just right down 50 yards from her house. And they go over every day and they take care of my mom. Usually different times of the day, they make sure she's up. They make sure she goes to bed and take care of her. That is that commandment. Honor your father and mother until the day that they die. Then you shall not commit murder. Now, uh, some translations say thou shalt not kill. They use the word kill there. If, if that's what that means, then God made His people violate that commandment because He told them to go in there and kill all the Amalekites, right? So the word translated better and the idea is thou shalt not murder. We're talking about the intentional taking of human life that's apart from war uh, we're talking about abortion and things like this. And then thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't have sexual relations with anyone outside of your marriage partner. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then you shall not steal. You shall not steal. Now obviously, I think that most of us, maybe when we were little, maybe we were at a candy store and we grabbed a little candy, Right? I did. Did y'all not do that? I did. You know what I did? Now, Linda, you didn't do that. Okay. Well, I did. When, and you know what I did when I got right with the Lord, Robert, when I was 19 years old? I wrote a letter to the person that owned that store. It was still there. Phillips Variety Store. Wrote them a letter and said, when I was young, I mean, I must have been real little, I stole some candy from there and I wrote them some money, a check, to replenish that. Because I wanted to get right with God anything I'd ever st stolen. That's what Zacchaeus did, didn't he? When he got right with the Lord. But you know, stealing is much more than just taking something out of a store and breaking in and all that kind of stuff. You can steal someone's reputation by lying about people. You can steal... Um, you know, one of the things that music artists are... So up in arms about, and rightly so, they produce music, then someone copies it and copies it and copies it, and someone taps into somebody's Netflix or anything like that, and what they're doing is they're stealing, even doing that kind of thing. Thou shalt not steal. You shall not steal. All right? Then the next commandment was, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Simply put, don't lie. Don't deceive. There's no such thing as a white lie. They're all lies. And God says, don't do that. And then, you shall not covet. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, I think I need a new car. Ooh, I like that car. But when you begin to say, ooh, I want that car. I'll do anything I can to have that car. I've got to have that car. Or whatever it is, that's called covetousness. And the Bible says, don't let that fester up in your heart. Okay? 
Now, we've known these things. We've seen these things. But this is the first time these people are hearing this. And it's totally against everything that they've ever been raised to do. In our chronological Bibles, um, I like what they said about this. The Ten Commandments identify Israel as a holy nation. The word holy means to be set apart, different from anybody else. God calls Israel to be a distinct community that worships Him and treats individuals with honor. How people view God determines their treatment of others. Living in community exposes Israel to personal sin and selfishness. So see, there's two million of them now. And human nature means some of them are going to start getting selfish and they're going to start having fights and they're going to start sinning. You already saw that real quick, didn't we? (laughs) With the golden calf. The rules God gives are designed to elevate a righteous standard, provide boundaries, protect the vulnerable, teach respect and responsibility for others, and their property reveals humans... Humanity's great capacity to do the most grievous things and establishes rules for violators. The rules reveal the sin that God that already exists in the heart. The Ten Commandments are not there to save you. The Ten Commandments reveal how short you fall of God's perfect standard. And by the way, the book of James says if you break one of God's commands, it's as if you broke all of them. James said that. Rules cannot remove sin. They merely create safe places for personal and communal flourishing. Ultimately, the rules reveal guilt before God. An altar in the midst of God's people reminds them that the penalty of sin is death and that God covers sin through and only through an acceptable substitute offered in faith. Substitutionary atonement is is God's way. So we see they are excited after the Red Sea parting the miracle, but not too long, three days, they're already forgetting and complaining against God and unbelief. And Moses goes up on the mountain one time, brings down the first set of Ten Commandments, And they're down there partying. He goes up there a second time and brings down the Ten Commandments, both written, the Bible says, by the finger of God. Then God had told Moses while he's up there on the mountain, I want you to build a special place for me to appear among you. And it's the way we would say it today, it was a tent. The Bible calls it the tent of meeting. Moses would go in this tent, this sacred tent that they were going to create, and meet with God. It was a symbol of God's presence among them, uh, the tabernacle. Um, it was some 40-something feet long and, and uh, um, of a tent. It was a rather uh, large tent, very plainly uh, seen among, among them. And um, so Moses would go there and he would meet with God. And the Bible says that during the day there would be a cloud that would hover over it and at night a pillar of fire that would come out of it, again showing God's presence. Then inside of that tent there was a special box about three feet by two feet called the Ark of the Covenant. And on this ark 
were of the covenant, blood was to be spilled over the top of that ark called the mercy seat. Then we see also uh, Moses, God had told Moses that he wanted to establish a priesthood, and so he chose Aaron, Moses' brother, and through uh, his relatives and such, started a priesthood. These folks were to be the ones who ministered before the Lord and would uh, have animal sacrifices, shed the blood as a substitutionary offering, and then God even told them there's some special days now that I want you to start celebrating. Jewish holidays, so to speak. And so that's what's happening uh, so far here. And then something very special happens only one time a year. One of those priests is the head priest called the high priest. And the high priest would go into that tabernacle once a year, just once a year, inside that inner veil called the Holy of Holies. And there on that golden box, the Ark of the Covenant, he would take blood of a bull and he would put it on that Ark of the Covenant and it would uh, cleanse the sin of the people, but it was only for one year. Only for one year. Let me get this. I, I meant to, uh, to bring this with me up here. Uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about uh, what the Day of Atonement was. It's also called Yom Kippur. You've probably heard that through the news. Um, the uh, Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, was the most solemn holy day of all the Israelite feasts and festivals. Before entering the tabernacle, Aaron was to bathe, and he's the high priest, and put on special garments. Then sacrifice a bull for a sin offering for himself and his family. The blood of the bull was to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, the top lid called the mercy seat. Then Aaron was to bring two goats, one to be sacrificed, the Bible says, because of the uncleanliness and rebelliousness of the Israelites. And then its blood was to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. The other goat was used as a scapegoat. You ever heard that? It was symbolic. The priest would place the sins of the people and he would shove the goat out to make it run off into the wilderness. That was the scapegoat. Um, the goat carried on itself all the sins of the people which were forgiven for just another year. Just one year at a time. Let me show you. You ever heard the uh, expression, a picture is worth a thousand words? Well, I want to show you a picture of the high priest. And by the way, the Day of Atonement, the word atonement means covering. Covering. But it doesn't just mean the idea of just covering and hiding something. It also has the idea of paying off a debt. For instance, sometimes I've gone out to eat as a pastor, and I'm about to go pay, and, and, and the waitress said, somebody's already covered you. Right? We use that term today. Somebody's already covered you. I'm going to tell you something. What happened right here was God was cutting them a one-year paycheck to pay for their sins when they uh, um, were rebelling against Him the Day of Atonement. He was covering their sins, paying for their sins for one year. Okay, Now, let's talk about the high priest. 
Again, this is all historical stuff. Next week, I'm going to get into the principal part. They had a turban with a band. On that band, it said, Holy to the Lord. Then there was the breastplate. It had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel on there. Even on his shoulders had a stone, two stones, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written down there. Then he had a thing called an ephod. We would call it a special kind of apron. But you'll see that word ephod used a lot in the Old Testament. You need to know what that means. Then that was the part of his robe down there at the bottom. Uh, you'll see at the bottom there are bells is what that represents. <laughs> okay. When the high priest was in there in the Holy of Holies, they could hear him walking around. There is a Jewish tradition. We don't know if it's true or not. It's just tradition that when the high priest went in there to offer a sacrifice, that if, it wasn't, if he didn't do it in the right way, God would kill him. And so the high priest would walk in there, put a rope around his leg, and when he's in there and everything's going cool, the bells are ringing, right? But the bells stop ringing, something's wrong, and they would drag the dead body of the high priest out. Now that's a Jewish tradition. The Bible doesn't say, say so. Something to think about. But at least we know that when he was in there, they were probably outside very quiet, and they could hear the bells of the priest ring. There's the bell. And then here's something special that we're going to see throughout the Old Testament. These two devices, we don't know if they were stones or whatever they were, these two devices called the Urim and Thummim were placed somehow inside that breast piece, and the purpose of the Urim and the Thummim was God's way of guiding His people back then. Maybe kind of like a casting lots kind of situation. It could be that the idea of the Urim and Thummim have the idea of light. Could it be that God would use these two devices, whatever they were, to shine a special light through those stones where they could determine the will of God? Should we go here? Should we go there? Which one, God? <laughs> this one, no light. This one, lights come on. We don't know, but somehow God used that as His main way of guiding His people uh, back in that day. Now, you've heard me say, uh, we talked about um, a, a picture of atonement, that the stain of sin was washed away. All right, now one of the questions that people have, and it's a good question, okay, all right. Uh, we know that in the New Testament, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that He was the true Lamb of God who paid for our sins. And people sometimes mistakenly believe that somehow the Ten Commandments and all these ritual sacrifices save them from eternal sin. It's this question. How are people saved in the Old Testament? Versus how are people saved in the New Testament? I wrote this down this week and I actually sent it to a theologian, one of my professors, and I said, would you check this out to make sure that I'm wording this correctly, okay? So, and so he, he sent me back a text with a thumbs up. And I said, does the thumbs up mean you got the text or what I said right? And he said, what you said was right. Okay, so listen to this. In the Old Testament, a person was not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments and the other Old Testament laws. Neither did animal sacrifices take away sin. That is, permanently, eternally. Salvation was by grace, through faith, 
in what they knew at that time about the future Messiah. They didn't know about a cross yet. They didn't know about His coming kingdom in the end times. All they understood was there's a Messiah who's going to come and He's going to fix this sin problem forever. And until that time, we're sacrificing all these animals and everything to show that a perfect substitute is coming one of these days. And so, it, it, so what they did is at that time, look at that, about the future Messiah, you got it in your mind? Specifically that no man could take away his own sin, but that God would have to save man through a substitute. The Bible says in Romans 4, 3, this was way before Moses. This is how Abraham got saved. Abraham believed God. He trusted it in God and it was credited to him, his spiritual bank account, as full righteousness. One may ask then, what was the purpose of the sacrificial system? The Old Testament sacrifices were a temporary covering, temporary covering of sin until Jesus could pay for a permanent covering for sin. In other words, the Old Testament believers, look at this, here's the cross, the Old Testament believers looked forward to the Messiah who would pay for their sins. They looked forward um, and placed their complete trust in what they knew about the Messiah at that time, and that's how they got saved. We look backwards after the cross. We look back to God's Son on the tree with a, uh, with much, with a much clearer view and place our faith in the Messiah, we now know who died, was buried, and rose again. And so all that to say, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, salvation is exactly the same. By faith, look at this, salvation has always been by grace alone, we don't deserve it. Through faith alone, no works, in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus alone. And so that's how people were saved in the Old Testament. Now it's interesting that when Jesus died on the cross, many things happened. It grew dark, but in the temple, which is like the permanent tabernacle at that time, there was this giant veil, just like in the, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, a veil that separated that small inner room. Only the high priest could go in once a year. Just once a year. He goes in this small little room with the Ark of the Covenant, into the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died, here's what happened. That veil was torn in two from the top to bottom. So there was no human explanation for that. And now the Bible teaches us that Jesus is our high priest who goes before the heavenly tabernacle the heavenly temple. Look, I love this painting. Look what's in his hands. You see that? The wounds from the cross. Those circles are in his, his hands where the nail prints were. And he stands before God in the heavenly temple, is our ultimate high priest. And look at what the Bible says, and then we're done. Hebrews 9. This is New Testament stuff, written decades after Christ died. Hebrews 9, 10 through 12. For that old system under Moses deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies. Physical res regulations that were in effect only until a better system, the New Testament, the New Covenant, could be established. So Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. 
He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. How did He enter? With the blood of bulls and goats? No, with His own blood. Not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place in heaven once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Let's bow for a word of prayer.